good morning and welcome to Adult Sunday School. Um, this is our seventh and final week as we study the uh, parable of Jesus and particularly the parable of the prodigal son. Today our focus is going to be on the third character in this um, very famous parable of Jesus, the older son. Um, We're going to talk about him for the most part today and then have some concluding application thoughts about this parable. Um, But just in brief review of the two characters that we've talked about so far, um, obviously the parable of the prodigal son, in lieu of reading it again, um, I'm going to just summarize briefly what we've talked about for the two previous characters. Obviously, the first is the prodigal son. It's the son that wished that he had his inheritance early, and by making that demand of his father, he was pretty much wishing that his father was dead. He had no relationship with his father, um, and he received his inheritance or the money due him that would have been due him at his father's death, and he spent, he gathered that money, went away to a far land, and lived a life of sinfulness and waywardness, and then he got to a place that he was desperate, um, where he took up work for a citizen of that area and began to work as a pig farmer or one that fed pigs. And he became so hungry and desperate that he began to uh, desire to eat the food that the, they were using to feed the, the pigs in a famine-stricken land. And he decided, hey, my father's hired servants are a lot better off than me, so he decides to return to his father. He comes back to his father with the expectation that his father would make him one of his hired servants, and yet, to his surprise, his father welcomes him back in amazing um, array of splendor and gives him back his rights and privileges as a kid. It's almost like the father took the shame that the son deserved um, in his coming back and his sinfulness. And um, the, son, the father restored him as a son, and he celebrated. He threw a big party to say, hey, my son has returned. And as we saw last week, the celebration wasn't really about anything the son had done. It was really more about the father's joy and the joy that the father had his son returning. And that is symbolic of what God does when a sinner comes to him, when a sinner repents. Um, and that's, that's what we see in the younger son is the sinner. We see... All of us who have lived on this earth, who are sinners by nature and have strayed away from God. And in the Father, we see Christ Jesus bearing our shame, taking on our, um, the humiliation due us as sinners. And we see Christ Jesus and God the Father and the angels in heaven celebrating the return of sinners. And that's amazing. It's an amazing story. We talked about, though, that Jesus was speaking this parable to an audience of two separate people. One was the sinners and outcasts of society that had gathered around him, and the other was the Pharisees, who were outraged and grumbled and complained by the fact that Jesus would even entertain these sinners and outcasts of society. They were the unpure ones, the unclean ones, and the, the Pharisees refused to associate with them. So we see... Um, that that's, the, that's who Jesus is talking to. And last week we talked about the fact that the Pharisees and the scribes and even the sinners and the outcasts would have been completely shocked by the way that the Father had restored the Son 
And they would have thought that it was shameful for him to do that. And that's why we saw that that shame pictures Christ and what he did on our behalf at Calvary. But today we turn to this other son, who's briefly mentioned in the first ten or so verses, and then in all his glory in the conclusion of the parable. So we'll read that part of the parable, and then we'll pray. Luke 15, verse 25 through 32. So just stay in Luke 15 like we have for the last four weeks. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, the father said, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive and was lost and is found. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before this blessed text um, that the Lord Jesus taught, Lord, I pray that you would, um, that you would um, teach your people today, Lord. I pray that you would teach me, Lord. I pray that our minds and our hearts would be focused on what your word has to say, Lord. Lord, I pray that um, there would be encouragement, there would be conviction according to your Holy Spirit. Lord, I ask that you would just bless this time. We're grateful for it, Lord. Grateful for the opportunity to be together around your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so before we get into what we know about this older son in verse 25 through 32, because that's really the section that deals with him, let's consider the fact that we don't have a whole lot of mention of the older son in the previous part of the parable. So let's look back and see where he is mentioned. The first thing that we're told in this parable is that this man, the father in this story, had two sons. And then we go on to talk about what the younger son wanted, what he desired, what he did. I think we need to ask ourselves, though, where was the older son? What's he doing? You, this, the older son is a person of prestige in this village life community in ancient um, Israel. It's important. The, 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 the older son has a place of high esteem. Where is he? Is he, you know, telling his little brother, hey, why don't you you know, shape up? You know, you don't talk to your father this way. How come he's not in there saying, hey, you need to be honoring your father more. This is where you've sinned. This is where you've done things incorrectly. Why wasn't he wanting to defend the honor of the father? Where was he? There's no mention of it. Jesus doesn't feel like there's anything there, and we can take some notes from that. Um, Is that because he didn't really have a relationship with the father or his younger brother? potentially. You'll also note that the inheritance wasn't just given to the younger son, but that the inheritance in verse 12 was divided between both of them. So the younger son got his one-third of the property, and he decided to cash it all in and run away and spend it all on sinful living, while the older son got his property 
It is his now. It didn't, he didn't have to wait for the father to die. It was his. Yet while the father was living, the father still had some control along with the son. But he got, just like the younger son, got most likely what he really wanted. However, he didn't leave. He didn't flee to another land. He stayed with his father. Um, but also think about the fact in verse verses 17 through 24 that all talk about the return of the prodigal son. That great moment that we love so much where the father comes and embraces and kisses the son that's returned. Where's the older son then? How come he's not there? What, what, what's, what's his relationship with the father and with the younger son I mean, you just would think from a human element, if somebody's brother who's been long lost and went astray like that, why isn't he just as excited and jubilant as the father? He wasn't there, though. He was not with his father rejoicing. If he cared for his father, he would have shared in this joy, right? Um, we see in this story that the older son, really, by his actions or his lack of action, despised the father as much as the younger son did. I mean, just consider the fact that no one went and got the older son out of the field and said, your younger brother has come home. You'd think that would have been a priority, right? Your younger brother has returned. Your dad wants to celebrate. Let's get, let's get to par- uh, planning the party. Nobody did that. There's no mention of that. Instead, he was out in the field and had new, no clue what was going on, which only points even further to the fact that there was no real relationship between the father and the son, at least on the son's behalf. Um, From the outside looking in, everybody probably liked this guy. You know, he's the one that didn't flee. So if we compare him, he's at least the one that stayed here with the father, right? He's the responsible one, potentially. He's the one that did his duty by staying with the father. But in reality, what we're going to find out, that was just a sham, as the, as the chapter concludes. It was just a sham as he did the things that were right, motivated for his own glory, the things that he wanted in life. Um, so I think it's important that we realize this story is about two sons, and yet the one son is strangely absent through most of the parable. So let's look at verses 25 through 27 first of all. I've entitled this on the section of your notes, He Receives the news. So let's read those verses. Let's start with verse 25. Now his older son was in the field as he came, and he drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. So he's out in the field, and he returns home, and he hears the celebration. What was he doing out in the field? He was probably out there overseeing the work from the, that the hired servants were doing, the, the, the actual servants that worked for the family, that worked the land. Um, he probably wasn't doing a whole lot of work on his own. There's noblemen at that time, especially a nobleman that's the son of a man of great wealth, like we've talked about this man being, didn't really work. They just oversaw the people to make sure the work got done. But there's something interesting about this, though, that shows the wealth of this family and the fact that he didn't know when he was out in the field that there was a huge celebration going on. That must say that speaks of some sort of distance, I think, because the they couldn't hear the celebration. It's not even that people from the village were passing through the fields on their way to the celebration. It's almost like this is a far-off area that's around that the family has. They must have a large plantation, you know, large field of land where they're working stuff. So it wasn't until he got closer 
that he heard the commotion that was coming from the party. Um, again, it's, it's, it's important to note that no one went out to the field to tell him. He knew nothing of this party until he starts walking towards the home and hears what's going on. So it could have been that, you know, no one, there must not have been a relationship between the father and the son or anybody in this older son. Or it could have been everybody was just so excited to get this party started because it seems like the father kind of rushes to get this party started. He just kind of forgot about it. Um, I think that's doubtful uh, because it would be important for the older son to be involved. And usually these great celebrations would involve the oldest son as the chief planner. That was kind of what he did. It was his role in helping to honor the father, and his role was to do things that the father would do. And he should be involved in these kind of things. And also, think about the fact that where was the money coming from to pay for this party? The fattened calf was the estates, right? So that's, that's his. He has two-thirds of this estate, right? It's his. Um, there, there's entertainers, there's dancers, there's musicians that are hired. Those are all being financed by the money that he has now inherited that's his, that the father has some control of, obviously, because he's able to spend it. Um, so think about that if you're the older brother. Um, one of his reactions must be, how are we paying for this? Who's paying for this? I'm paying for this. That's uh, extra stuff there. Uh, let's see. But the older son was not involved in the decision of how to use the money. So his lack of involvement in the party shows how little relationship he really had with his brother. And even worse, the lack of relationship he had with his father. So he comes up in verse 26, and he calls one of the servants and asks what these things meant. So who's this servant? You'd think that this party would involve the use of all the servants they possibly could, could need because they're going to have a village-wide celebration where everybody's going to eat the fatted calf. Um, and this is most likely a servant boy, maybe a child of one of the servants that works the estate. Um, and this young man, along with any other child, probably wouldn't have been invited to the village-wide celebration in the house but the children probably would have wanted to get as close as possible to the celebration. They wanted to hear the music. They wanted to see the people dancing. They wanted to smell the aromas of the cooking fatted calf. So most likely, there's, as, the, as the man's approaching the house, he hears the music, and there's these children playing in joy and excitement. And he almost looks at the child in a way that's had to be intimidating to the child. I mean, this is the person in second command of this great, grand estate. So he must have intimidated the kid, looking at him and saying asking him, what did these things mean? Um, so he had to be intimidated. He probably had never had a conversation with the older son before. This is the one time he's ever spoken to him, and he says, hey, what's going on here? You tell me what's going on. Um, so he demands an answer from this young boy. And the young boy, to his power, tells him what happens. To his credit, in verse 27, he says, and he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. So he tells him exactly what has happened. The first thing that happens is your brother has come home. He's returned. And now you're thinking here, all right, you're the older son. And you're thinking about this. Really? He has the audacity to come back? How could he come back after what he did? Not only did he leave by demanding the inheritance early, but he also left and when he left, he went to a faraway land, and he did all these shameful things that we know about. Stories must have come back about what the shameful acts of this man had done away from his family. And then you think about 
the fact that he was just like we talked about all the shameful things he did building upon each thing that he was desiring to hang out with the pigs and eat the food that they had and that provided even greater shame so the audacity of the younger son to even come back but it starts to become a reality to him at this point as he hears this this celebration is because his father is throwing a party for him and not only does he throw him a party but he does an extravagant party that no one would even consider especially for this and this is the shocking thing for this young man not only did he not shame the son as far as he thought he should have upon the son's return, he throws him a party and he gives him the fattened calf, which might have been reserved for the older son's wedding. We don't know that, but that's sometimes something important, some celebration. The, the older son might have been involved in some celebration that was going to be later, in the, that was planned later, yet the father has decided to thwart all those plans and to celebrate the return of the son celebrate his joy in the fact that the son has returned and repented. Um, so think about this as the prodigal. If you're the prodigal, you're thinking about these things. It's your money. It's your fattened calf. And your dad's just wasting it on this brother that deserves absolutely nothing in his view. And not only did he, he return and the father killed the fattened calf, but the father, it says, received him back safe and sound. So this implies a sort of reconciliation. There's no, um, you know, you come back, you do these things, and you'll be back in my good graces. You're immediately back in my good graces. Safe and sound is where we get the English word hygiene, which is interesting to think about. So he's now clean. He doesn't have anything there. But also in the Hebrew, it's similar to the word shalom, which we know means peace. So he's restored completely with peace. The younger, the younger son is. And so those words mean a lot as the older son is processing these things. There was complete peace between the father and the prodigal son. He was not even going to have to work to gain his father's approval. Oh, imagine the shame of that. And the, the older son must have been furious at this point. And now let's consider the fact that I'm going to steal a little bit of my thunder, but that's okay that I have later in my notes. We know who this person is, right? We know that the sinners and the prodigal represents the sinners that Jesus is welcoming into his home, into his family that angers the Pharisees. But this, this boy resembles the Pharisees. And really, his, the Pharisees have got to be listening to the story thinking at some point, we have, we've talked about two characters so far. We've talked about this son that rebels and sins and is unclean and shameful. We've talked about him. We know he, we don't side with him. We're not good with that. We've talked about the father who is almost humiliating himself and bringing shame upon himself and reconciling with this sinful boy. We don't like him. We don't like him at all. So here's the older son. This is the guy that's going to make the story right. He's going to make it right. He's the one that is going to respond the way a Pharisee, a true Pharisee who's committed to the law of God and the self-righteousness and the, what we'll call the hypocrisy, but the self-righteousness that they desire and the works-based righteousness that they pursue, he's the one that's going to make things right. Okay, So as we think about verses 28 through 30, think about this. The Pharisees would have been perfectly accept, found this response by the older son as perfectly acceptable. This is what they would have responded if they were placed in this story. 
So the, all the, the things that we hold to, the emotions that we love in the previous part with the Father embracing the Son and holding Him and kissing Him and receiving Him back, the Pharisees are ashamed of that. And the Pharisees would have responded exactly like the older son did in verses 28 through 30. So let's look at verse 28. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. He was so angry with what would happen. He did not want to participate at all in this celebration. He refused to go in. So it's almost like he folds his arms and stamps his feet and stands on the outside of the house. He won't go in. This is really his heart attitude right here. For years, he's cloaked his attitude and his disdain, most likely, for the Father. And now it's evident that he disdains the Father, especially now for what he's done with the Son. Um, And this was his public display of what was in his heart. He's not going to go join the celebration. But the Father... So if we've talked about there doesn't appear to be this great relationship between the older son and the father, yet the father goes out of the house, leaves the celebration, the joy that he's experiencing there about his son returning, and he goes out and pleads with him. He goes and pleads with him in verse 28. His father came out and entreated him. So that shows something about the father again. We've seen some many great things about the nature of this man. We saw that he treated his hired servants better than he was required to by the law because he gave them more than they could eat. We saw the fact that he received his son back and almost bore the shame that the son deserved. We saw that. But we also see that he loved this older son as well because he went out and entreated with him and said, hey, we need you to come in. Come join in this, this joy that our family has now that your, son, your brother has returned So he has the same compassion that he had for his younger son. He wanted him to participate in his joy. He wanted him to celebrate. This is God in Christ. um, That's who the Father is. It's God in Christ entreating people to join the celebration, entreating the Pharisees, join the celebration that I have in bringing more people to the kingdom. Um, Yet, that didn't appeal to this older brother. He didn't say, oh, great, Dad, you've, you've convinced me. Now it's time for me to um, ask your forgiveness for the attitude I've had. But instead, he spews forth venom in response to the father, starting in uh, verse 29. He says, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I've never disobeyed you. Okay, a couple things here. He doesn't call him father. He doesn't say Father, man that I respect, the authority in my life, Father. No, he says, look here. Let me tell you where you've messed up. Okay, so he's, obviously there's a lack of respect here. That's the first thing he did. He didn't even take the time to properly address his father. He just jumps into his tirade against him. And look at how he has relate. he believes that he's been relating to his father all these years doesn't say, I've loved you, and that way, and I've been dedicating myself to the work of our family and our family's legacy. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say because I'm doing, I, I'm submitting to authority. It says, I have served you all these years. These many years, I have served you. So what does that tell you? 
The, young, the, the older son related to his father as if he were a slave. He felt like all he was required to do and supposed to do was to work like a slave for his father. So he saw his father merely as a master and he as the slave. He didn't see himself as a son. Um, and he didn't, he, in, in, his, in his service, um, pretty much what he's saying is, I am working for something. What am I working for? He saw he, there was no love here, just his dutiful obedience. Uh, served, served here is really the term that we get for doulos, meaning slave. So that's exactly how he saw his relationship with his father. So his motivation, as we can see, as he got his inheritance and didn't have any qualms about taking the two-thirds of the inheritance early, was motivated. His, his motivation was to have his inheritance. And think about how he overreacts. You know, usually when we respond emotionally and are upset about something, we don't respond rationally. He doesn't respond rationally at all. Um, the first claim he makes about him serving you is that he's never disobeyed his father's command. Really? Never? Are you kidding me? Hey, every son has disobeyed his father's command. It's a daily occurrence in my household. Um, but he claimed that he really had never disobeyed one of his father's commands. Okay, he's acting irrationally here. But he really believed in his own self-righteousness for doing good. But in reality, he was just a hypocrite. He truly believed he had never done anything wrong. So we talked about in, uh, if you look at verse 7 of chapter 15, when we talked about the parable of the lost sheep, that the uh, shepherd left the 99 to go find the one that was lost. Um, verse 7 says, and when Jesus is concluding it, it says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. This young man is one of the 99. doesn't feel like he needs to repent. Um, he, need, he doesn't need um, to do that. So he really thinks he elevates his view of his righteousness to the sinfulness of his brother. That's what's going on later as he continues to discuss that. Um, and then not only does he say he never disobeyed a command of his father, he accuses his father of never giving him anything. Okay, remember we talked about both of these boys never did without anything. This is a wealthy estate. They always had what they needed, more than they needed. Um, so much so that even the hired servants got more than they needed. Um, that's how uh, gracious the father was. Um, but he says, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. So you see the comparison there. This son that's returned gets the fattened calf, and you, won't, you wouldn't even give me a young goat. Yet, the young goat, what do you want the young goat for? Did he want it to hang out with the family and to promote the joy that exists in his family? No, he wanted the young goat so he could celebrate with his friends. He didn't desire to be with his family. Um, he wanted his father to, to honor him in a way just for his legalistic obedience. And he felt like the father had never given him anything. Which, really, again, are you kidding me? Never disobeyed him and his father never gave, gave him anything. Come on, that's not true. But he, that's how he believed his situation was. He wanted to celebrate with his friends. And we think about the symbolism of this young man with the Pharisees and how all they did was associate 
with fellow Pharisees, with their fellow law keepers. They kept themselves distanced from the people that needed God's law the most, and they didn't associate with sinners. And that's what this young man desired to do. He wanted a young goat to hang out with his friends. He felt that his younger brother had been the beneficiary of the father's favoritism. And that's what he spewed forth in his anger towards him. He even, in verse 30, talks about how rebellious the son was. He says, But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Think about this, too. He didn't call... Just these little nuances here in the text are important. He says in verse 30, But when this son of yours came... He didn't say, This guy, this brother of mine who was lost and now is found. He didn't say that. Once again, revealing the fact that he had no relationship with his brother. But he almost says, accusatorily, this son of yours, this son of yours, and then the next thing he says is, who has devoured your property with prostitutes? This son of yours, and this is how bad he has sinned. This is the shame he's brought on. And this is your fault because you gave him that money. So he, he is completely accusing the father of the reason, making the father responsible for why the son did that. Think about that, though. The, the son of your... You know, you think about that. You know, we sometimes do that in our house. And maybe I'll refer to Emily and say, this, hey, this daughter of yours, which seems to be the common topic right now, <laughs> um, is high maintenance, um, whatever it is right now. Um, but we do that, right? But we do that in jest. This, this guy had no relationship with his father or with his brother. Um... And then the fact is, he gets the lavish gift of the fattened calf in his celebration. He's missing the whole point here, though, right? Just like the Pharisees do. He missed the whole point. The whole point isn't that the son has done something great on his own accord, deserving of this feast. The reality is, the celebration is because the father has great joy in the fact that his son has returned. So it's the father's joy in the father's restoration that's being celebrated in that party. He didn't even give that part, give that the father an opportunity to give that explanation. That's the exciting part here for the father. It's not that this this son had sinned and rebelled and come back. It's that the father had received him, and that's what we're celebrating here: the father's joy. Um, and he hated that. So that is a pretty weighty response to the father as he comes out and entreats the son to come in and join the celebration. But then the father, in verse 31, comes and he explains himself to him. Think, look at this too. Compare the way the son is talking to the father, not referring to him as father, not giving him any respect, not, going, not calling the younger son his brother, but saying the son of yours. And what is the first thing the father says? Son. Pretty much, it's, it's, this is a different word than son throughout the rest of this text. This is really child. There's a tenderness there. In the Father, um, this is a tender, compassionate response by the Father. And think about this, though: the same law that we talked about that allowed the Father to slap the prodigal across the face because the fa- the prodigal son requested his um, inheritance early. When a son responds to a father this way, the father has the exact same right, according to the Old Testament law, to slap his son across the face for his disrespect. <laughs> Once again, we see the father not doing that. 
He's compassionate. He's kind. He cares for his son. He explains his position about why they're celebrating. He calls him son, and he says that all he has is his as well. He says, son, you are always with me, and that all is mine is yours. Um, They'd always been together. He hadn't gone anywhere. He'd always had the benefits of living with the father and having the things that the father had. Um, And think about that for the Pharisees' sake. These are the people that were most studied in God's word, right? That knew God's law the best. They should have gotten this, but they didn't because they were so wrapped up in their personal self-righteous, works-based system. Um, But then he says in verse 32, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. And really, it is fitting is it is necessary. We had no other option but to celebrate. This is what we do. We celebrate. He also emphasizes the dead to life um, and lost to found imagery that has been repeated in this chapter. And this is pretty much a restatement of the chapter's theme, that God rejoices when lost sinners are recovered. Look at verses 7 and 10 again. We just read verse 7, but the first half of verse 7 is, just so I tell you there will be more joy in heaven in heaven over one sinner who repents. So the joy in heaven is when one sinner repents. And then chapter 15, verse 10, just so I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then 32 kind of parallels that. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and found. So it's the same theme throughout the entire thing. And that's the end of the story. Um, So a couple words about the symbolism of the older son. Now, we've touched on this a little bit. We know that this is the Pharisee. But there are some views out there that think that this person is merely a wayward believer that needs to get an attitude adjustment. That is not the case. There's nothing in this text that describes any remote love for the Father. So I think that's a, that's a bad translation or uh, interpretation. Um, this, this is the Pharisee. That's, Jesus' audience is the Pharisees and the sinners. And he's already described the sinner. This is the Pharisee. And the Pharisees really like this guy. This is their guy. This is who they pin their hopes on to respond correctly in here in this story. He was the one that was going to set the record straight because the first few characters had refused to do that. And pretty much what they symbolize is not just the Pharisees, but it's anyone who claims, clings to their own works to make themselves acceptable to God. The younger one is the one who seeks salvation by grace. The older one is the one who seeks it by works. The Pharisees are described in Matthew 23, 28, if you want to turn there. Matthew 23, verse 28. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And that's what this, this older son was. He You know, he stayed with the Father. He was the one that everybody thought was right on track. He was the one that um, was separate from that younger brother, was nothing like him. And he shows that he was nothing like wanting to be with him at all. 
and the fact that he didn't want to meet him at all when he came back. Um, and, then, and really, the fact is they are the people that felt that they were righteous on their own. The Pharisees were, and this young older brother symbolizes that. The people that felt like they did not need a Savior. Um, and the Pharisees believed that the older son probably should have been honored for not celebrating the shame of the prodigal and the shame of the father that they perceived. In contrast to what the Pharisees believed, God never rejoices in the self-righteous man. They believed it, though. They believed that if I just kept doing these things, keeping the law, keeping the law that we added to the law, keeping the minute details of the law, we'd be building up righteousness for ourselves, and that would be okay. But that's not the case, and that's what this older brother was doing. That's who he is in this story. Yet, don't you find it odd that this story just ends in verse 32 with the dad telling him, we had to celebrate, your son was lost, now he's found, he was dead to us, now he's alive. It just ends. And if you look at chapter 16, Jesus says, or it says, he also said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, he goes into another parable, talking to his disciples. So it's almost like the crowd Maybe it's still around him. We don't know the details specifically, but later on there's some talk about some people still being around. But you would think that at this point, Jesus would tell us, what, give us some more information. What does this parable mean? And maybe it's because the parable is pretty evident. People knew what it meant. Or he wants you to figure it out for yourself. Maybe that's part of it. But he goes to chapter 16, if this narrative is in chronological form, and starts talking only to his disciples about the next parable. Um, so he doesn't explicitly tell us what happened. Some textual critics will argue that the abrupt ending reveals that we're missing part of the original text. Um, we don't believe that here, of course. Um, so why did Jesus end the story this way? Has he dealt with the ethical dilemma completely? Have we seen that? I mean, that's what it's all about, right? There's a story, there's ethics, there's, we've seen you know, the theological elements here, we've seen the Christological elements here to some degree, but he never really wrapped up this ethical dilemma about what to do about this father-son and other father-son and relationship. Has he dealt with it? Um, it's the ethics in the story that Jesus used to draw people in, and maybe by leaving it open, he drew them in even further to consider it in another way. But maybe the fact, of, the fact is that Jesus didn't resolve the story is the point of the story for us to consider. Um, verse 32 again reveals God's joy when lost sinners repent. This is the emphasis of the story, that God rejoices when sinners repent. The emphasis is not on these characters that Jesus used in the parable to talk about relationships, but the, the story is about God's joy for sinners. This is what all of Jesus' hearers at the time needed to hear, especially the Pharisees who sat back in their smugness and judged each of the characters as Jesus told the story. It's an appeal to them to forsake their pride and self-righteousness and to repent. And it's not just for them. All should come away from the story and look at themselves when considering how kind God is towards sinners. It's like Jesus left out the application for each of us on our own to personalize it, for them as his original hearers, for us as well to consider this story. Where do we fit into the story of God's kindness? Are we like the prodigal? Are we 
Are we on the, the sinful way like this where everybody can see our outward sinfulness? Are we over here um, and wrapped up in our self-righteousness thinking our works are going to be sufficient to save us? Where are we in this pendulum? That's the question that Jesus, Jesus is leaving us with when he just abruptly ends the story. Um, I think that's, that's important for us to consider. Not to say that there's, I'm not trying to say there's not just one truth. That's not what I'm saying at all. But it is, there is an application there that we can make to consider for ourselves. Um, so that's what we should consider. We should consider the fact that Jesus' main goal in each of these three parables was to reveal what gives God joy. What gives God joy? It's sinners repenting. And then also, how far the Pharisees were from God's heart. The story was really, besides about being about God, was more about them than the prodigal. Um, I've changed my notes here, so let me see here. The, the Pharisees probably had their idea about how the story should have ended. The, prob- the father probably is the one that needed to have repented because he acted so shamefully in his acts towards the younger son. But they weren't ignorant. They saw Jesus' point, which might be the reason why there's no record of them asking him any questions or why Jesus just left off. They, they, they got it. They weren't happy about it. They know what he was saying to them. Um, how did they respond? Did they see the folly of their self-righteous pursuits and repent? Whereas we rejoice and see God's grace towards sinners in this parable, I mean, we cling to this parable, and we should. It's great. We worship God because of it. We see ourselves as unworthy sinners of his unmerited favor. We don't hesitate to join in the celebration for the most part. The Pharisees, however, resented Jesus. They resented his inclusion of unworthy sinners. They resented the fact that he de-emphasized the following of the letter of the law like they had done. They believed they deserved God's favor because they had earned it through their law-keeping through their self-righteousness. That's what they believed. If we were to write the end of the story, as the gospel continues, it might go something like this. Um, The older son heard the father's appeal to come in. He responded to the father. The father, in verse 32, says, yes, we had to do this. We had to celebrate. Your son has come back. And right in front of everybody, the Pharisee, as represented by the older son, would have killed the father that's what they did. That's exactly what happened. Um, Luke 16, 14, if you turn there. So the Pharisees haven't left completely this context. Jesus, in verse 1 of 16, says he also said to his disciples, goes into another parable. In Luke 16, 14, it says, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard these things, and they ridiculed him. The Pharisees were right there. They overheard the parable Jesus was telling his disciples, and they ridiculed him. They were still near enough to hear his teaching. They were ashamed by the fact that Jesus was saying that they were lovers of money, but it was obvious in their lives. They were determined to silence Jesus. Mark 14, 1 says, they devised a plan by stealth to kill him. They were ready to kill Jesus in secret. They planned it, and they're ready to do that. As Jesus continued to teach in his ministry, they opposed him more and more and more to the point that they wanted him dead. We saw that even today's text that Dan was preaching on. They picked up the stones, ready to kill him. 
Christ got in the way of their man-centered, works-based righteousness by including sinners and tax collectors in the kingdom of God, and they were far from God's heart. For the Pharisees, this is the tragic ending. They were willing participants in the death of Christ because they did not heed Christ's commands. Yet the reality is that their tragic ending was not the end for Jesus. God in his sovereignty used their wicked plan to bring about man's redemption. Acts 2, 22-24. If you go there, this is Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So it was in God's sovereignty that the Pharisees were involved in the plot to kill Jesus, overturned him to the Romans, and were complicit in his crucifixion and murder. Yet that's for our good. It's for those who trust in Christ's good. Christ's perfect sacrifice was alone sufficient or is alone sufficient to atone for sin that man has, and his resurrection was proof of God's acceptance of that. Is that 2 Corinthians 5.21? He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. Christ's, Christ's death provided for us what we could never do on our own, What the Pharisees were striving to do in their law, creating and keeping, was to earn God's favor, and they never could do that. This is the true end of the story. God has provided salvation through Jesus. Whether you're the open sinner, like the prodigal, or the prideful hypocrite, like the older son, the plea, like the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20, is be reconciled to God. So where, if whether you, as one that does, as not a believer in Christ, I appeal to you to be reconciled to God. And that's what the story is about. It's about the reconciliation that's available through Christ to the sinner and the joy that exists in heaven when the sinner repents. That is the end of the prodigal son. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you, Lord, for the glory of the gospel. Lord, the gospel which reveals to us that we are sinful, Lord, that there is no work we can do on our own, Lord, that would please you and honor you. But the reality is that Christ's all-sufficient atoning work on the cross for our behalf is all we need, Lord, to earn favor with you. It is Christ's work, Lord. Our trust is not in ourselves, but wholly in him. Lord, we praise you for that. Lord, I pray that Um, that this would motivate us, Lord. It would motivate us, Lord, to see the joy that you have when sinners repent. Lord, may we be willing participants in that, Lord. You have granted us that great opportunity. And Lord, may we be faithful um, to participate in sharing your truth and seeing sinners brought to your kingdom. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this opportunity to be together. May we glorify you as we listen to your word preached and as we fellowship one with another. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys.